0: are watching that is a warning to not let your kids end up on the magic island i knew it all along advice on how to masturbate less it tickles the imagination god is a supercomputer
1: is this bullshit welcome to the irrational discourse podcast this is Doug Sherman, and I'm here with my co-host, Chris. Hey, hey, guys. We're back. For the Existential Threats Continued episode. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so this episode, we are going to delve into the first intrinsic existential threat, which would be nuclear weapons. hmm
0: Well... Good thing we don't all have our finger on that button. <laughs>
1: yeah, and I think this one kind of came to the to the you know the forefront just over things that have happened in our country in the last four or five years and around the world with Korea and even more recently in the Ukraine with uh, Mr. Putin using really a lot of irresponsible rhetoric on the use of nuclear weapons mm-hmm. uh, in a in a conflict that could easily and very quickly escalate you know, beyond control. May it not. In our last episode, we discussed briefly Nick Bostrom's four classifications for existential risks. They were bangs, crunches, shrieks, and whimpers. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So with nuclear weapons, it's more likely to either be a bang or a crunch. And, and mainly what that, that means is as a bang, it would be something that would quickly and irrevocably wipe out the, the human species. And a lot of other life on the planet in the process.
0: Yeah, I mean, forget about everybody else, right? Let's just think about the humans. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding, guys, just kidding. (laughs) Yeah, the
1: planet would probably be a lot better off without the humans. but
0: (laughs) But would it be as fun...
1: No, no, would <laughs> not. And then you know, otherwise it could be a crunch and if we look back at you know what the definition of a crunch was it means that we pretty much irrevocably wipe out our chances of reaching some kind of post-human super techno paradise but life does continue to live on in some you know, very depleted form.
0: Yeah, it's not in its golden
1: age. No. Maybe think of the walking dead on a much smaller scale. Mm, mhm. I mentioned Mad Max in our last episode, Max Stegmark at MIT. He recently—well, let me back up. Okay. So back in, in 1980, you know, really at the height of the Cold Wars, 1980, 1981, uh, Reagan had just come to office. There was a protest against nuclear weapons in Central Park in New York. Okay. And over a million people showed up. Wow. Yeah, it was—at the time, it was the largest organized protest in the history of the country.
0: Wow. That's a lot of people.
1: Yeah. So a couple of years ago, Max Tegmark did a, not a protest. He was, he was at a speaking event. They had promoted it for months to the student body to bring friends and family, and they were going to discuss nuclear weapons, the threat they posed, what could be done to try to pressure our politicians to do something about it. Five people showed up. Whoa. And Max Tegmark is a very well-respected, very well-liked, very popular professor at MIT. But the topic only pulled five people. Wow! So that just gives an indicator of how much public interest has fizzled. Sure. In the past four decades. Oh on yeah. The topic of nuclear weapons.
0: You know, I mean, God, why would you want to talk about that when you could talk about like, I don't know.
1: Well, I think most of the, a lot of it revolves around the fact that. In the 80s, you were at the height of the Cold War. There was a lot of rhetoric on nuclear weapons. In the United States, Ronald Reagan was pushing Star Wars to defend against nuclear weapons. Movies came out, such as The Day After, which was really a good movie, about post-apocalyptic survivors in a dystopic society, you know, the day after the war. And it really shocked a lot of people because it covered—I vaguely remember one scene where— I think it was Kansas or Nebraska, and there was a family living out in the Plains, and the mother was coming out like hanging up laundry. And just over the horizon, you just saw plumes where dozens of warheads just launched. Oh, man. (laughs) And everybody was standing around, pointing and looking. And then all of a sudden, the detonation started on our end. I think that was one where science fiction really shocked people Mm -hmm. into seeing what could happen. Yeah, and and pushing for political action to try to prevent that. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the Soviet Union fell in in 1990, 1991. Arms treaties went into place. Uh, Warhead arsenals have, you know, the inventories have significantly depleted. And I think people have... You know, kind of put it, okay, that's past us, let's worry about yeah. the next thing. Yeah,
0: that was the Cold War, now we don't need to worry about that.
1: Right, and Max Tegmark said he's he's actually had this conversation with just everyday people, just BSing. He was talking to an Uber driver coming back from an airport one day, and he asked him, how many warheads do you think we have in the world today? Oh, I couldn't tell you. And the guy said, in the world? And he's like, yeah, and he's like, I don't know, seven. <laughs> and then he was talking to a woman at an airport on another day, and they were just chatting and the conversation came up and she said three. And he had a student one time say, Well, isn't there just like one? Whoa. So there's there's, you know, a significant amount of misunderstanding of the threat that it still poses to I mean, us. my
0: my guess is tens of thousands, yeah. but I, I don't know.
1: <laughs> so nuclear weapons posed four distinct threats to humanity. Mm. The first is the immediate death toll from the immediate deaths from the initial strikes. Mm -hmm. You know, the bombs come in, they blow up, they kill a shitload of people with, you know, the force of the blast, the firestorm, uh, people were incinerated. You know, that's the deaths from the initial blast. Then there's radiation in the fallout, which is a longer term effect. As we talked in the last episode, the Alvarez hypothesis on the KT extinction event was you have nuclear winter that follows from there. What coincides with that is a depletion of the ozone. Mm-hmm. So it's those four things that can ultimately lead to either a bang or a crunch scenario for humanity if we don't mitigate this risk.
0: Yeah. Well, so how can we mitigate this risk?
1: Now we're going back to our last episode again on how <laughs> do we trigger our politicians to think for a period that is, you know, outlasts the you know the election cycle or the local news cycle. Mm-hmm. And it's going to take a lot of public pressure. And politicians do respond to public pressure. That's true. One of our goals is if we can get five people that listen to this podcast to maybe write a letter to their politician or send an email to their politician saying, we really need to do something about the nuclear arsenal that exists in the world, you know, we've done our job. I know I'm writing Mm -hmm. letters to our politicians. Heck yeah, man. To my politicians. Nice, yes. Telling them this is... This This is is a significant issue for not only me, but for my children and for his children or her children, and something has to be done.
0: Yeah, yeah, we can't just keep pussyfooting around the uh, topic. (laughs) No,
1: because six years after the million-person protest in Central Park, Mikhail Gorbachev and Ronald Reagan signed a treaty limiting intermediate-range nuclear weapons, and the decline of the nuclear arsenal started at that point. If 10 people had showed up in Central Park, you know, maybe nobody would have done anything. Sure. Hmm. So it's that political efficacy, and, you know, we, we need to be involved.
0: Do you know the number? Like, how many? Uh...
1: I do, and we're going to get to that. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, but nuclear winter and the depletion of the ozone layer are the most concerning. When, when Rob, Robert Oppenheimer made the statement, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds, he was basically referring to the destructive power of the weapon itself. Mm-hmm. It wasn't for another 35 years that we understood the concept of nuclear winter. And it wasn't until some years after that where we understood the effects of the depletion of the ozone layer to where the deaths from the initial blast and the fallout, while significant, pale in comparison wow. to the effects of the last two. Wow.
0: Whew. Yeah, a moment of silence on that one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> We've talked about the Future of Life Institute, which has a uh, board of sponsors that you know, was started by Albert Einstein, and Robert Oppenheimer was the first chair. And a lot of this stemmed from the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August of 45 to force Japanese surrender. Mm -hmm. There's a little story into that, too. Japan was going to surrender. Oh, man. They were trying to surrender with acceptable terms. But they had reached out to Joseph Stalin to negotiate with Roosevelt on their behalf. Or not Roosevelt. It was Truman. So there's a lot of theories as to why Truman dropped the bombs anyway.
0: Yeah. What the heck?
1: Throughout the war, Russia didn't declare war on Japan until the very end of the war. Okay. So towards the end of the war, when it was pretty obvious that the Japanese had been defeated, it was just a matter of time, Russia declared war and started sending troops towards Japan. And Truman, along with Churchill, were very skeptical of Russia and of Joseph Stalin. The bomb was a way of forcing Japan to surrender faster And also as a warning message to Russia. Sure. Look at what we have. Don't mess with us.
0: Yeah. Whew. Dude. (laughs) As
1: a result, a couple hundred thousand people died. Yeah. But the number of people killed in the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki really pale in comparison to the bombing campaigns of 1945 with just raising cities in Japan. Wow. Brutal, man. There's something called a, a single integrated operation plan, which the United States did from... I think it was 1960 until, 19, until 2003, which was basically what was the military's plan in the U.S. for defense from and use of nuclear warheads. Yeah. So it was called PSYOP, not Psychological Operations. In there,
0: <laughs> yeah, like S-C-I?
1: Yeah, S-I-O-P. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So JFK was elected in 1960, took office in January of 61, uh, and he named Robert McNamara as Secretary of Defense. And Robert McNamara wasn't anti-Newt at the time. He wasn't a war hawk for nuclear war either. Mm -hmm. But he did work on the PSYOP know, recommending increases in arsenals. But he had also had meetings with his staff. And one of his staffers had put forth a study that he had done that projected what was necessary to defeat a country like the Soviet Union. Okay. The hypothesis was if you destroy 20% of their industrial capability, a good portion of their military and around 20% of the population, that's enough to bring any country to its knees. And in order to do that, he estimated that you needed about 400 warheads. Wow. And McNamara said he didn't disagree with him and others didn't disagree with him either. So 400 warheads was basically what they figured would be necessary in order to force the Soviet Union into either surrender or, you know, or treaty or treaty. Yeah. yeah. Nevertheless, in PSYOP 1962, the the strategic nuclear force of the United States at the time consisted of 2,938 aircraft weapons. These are nuclear weapons. Yes. 141 cruise missiles and 188 ICBMs. Wow. So the total was thirty-two, thirty-three hundred. 3,300. The Soviet Union strategic nuclear force was significantly less. In the 50s, we thought that there was a gap and that the Soviet Union had the advantage. Hmm. But after we started to get better intelligence, we realized that the gap was just the opposite. Hmm. The gap existed, but it was in our favor. I see. So the Soviet Union had around 200 aircraft weapons compared to our nearly 3,000. 10 to 25, I'm sorry, around 78 cruise missiles compared to our 141 in between 10 and 25 ICBMs. So for a total of roughly 300, where well, we had a roughly 3,300. Wow. So 10, 11 to one. Wow. So the damage estimates in PSYOP 62, this was declassified uh, a few years back. So the United States, based on the above strategic nuclear forces that I just mentioned, mm-hmm. had 983 nuclear threat targets. So these were targets that were, they could have been silos, they could have been holding centers, whatever, for, for Russia's nuclear, Soviet Union's nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. 103 government control centers. And you have to understand these numbers don't actually add up to the full 3,300 because some targets are... Are not
0: real targets. No, are-
1: they're real targets, but they're targeted twice. Oh, okay. We want to make sure that they get hit. Ah, uh-huh. 494 cities, wow. including almost every city in the Soviet Union with a population over 50,000. Wow. So the immediate death toll estimates was that the Soviet Union would lose around 108 million, that China, who was also part of the targeting in PSYOP-62, would lose around 104 million, that Soviet satellite nations, Poland, Hungary, you know, the Eastern Bloc countries, would lose around five million for a total death toll of around 217 million people. Dear Lord. For the first launch, for the full launch and that's immediate. The estimated 72-hour deaths, so between one day and three days after the initial strike, was around an additional 300 million people.
0: And do they understand like the nuclear fallout aspect too?
1: So you got to remember the nuclear winter, they understood the nuclear fallout, but they didn't understand the nuclear winter Ah, aspect. That wasn't until the 80s. Okay. So the estimated long-term deaths weren't estimated, but it was roughly calculated and thought to be higher than the total initial deaths. The estimated US, U.S. deaths from a full retaliatory strike was around 60 to 80 million. And that varies significantly, you know, depending, depending upon who which yeah, who you ask, which report. And population of the U.S. at that time was around 180 to 200 million people. Mm-hmm. So roughly one-third of our population immediately wiped out.
0: In that scenario.
1: Yes. Now, the estimates that I gave above in, in the strategic nuclear... Uh, arsenal. Those those were only based on operational weapons and warheads. So there's also a lot of warheads that are either non-operational or scheduled for disassembly. Oh, okay. So, and the military had a really blasé, lackadaisical attitude towards the use of nuclear weapons. So in, in 1971, the chief of staff of the U.S. Air Force was a guy by the name of I remember it because I like the show Jack Ryan. His name's John. It goes by Jack. You know, it was Tom Clancy character. Mm -hmm. But it was General John Ryan. And his statement was, if there was a nuclear war, the United States could lose 200 million people and still have more than we had at the time of the Civil War. Wow. (laughs) And this was in... His math was fucked. His Sorry, his math was messed up. Yeah. <laughs> his math was messed up because uh, we had around 30 million, 35 million people at the time of the Civil War. We had like 205, 210, so the math didn't work out. But yeah. the fact that he said it was scary. He was like, yeah, we could lose 200 million people, and it would just kick us back 150 years or 100 years Dude, you know. <laughs> at the time. I did do some estimates on the total number of nuclear weapons.
0: Yeah, okay. <laughs>
1: And I actually got this. I, I had my source. I went to, I went to several different sources just to kind of get the uh, the numbers. And again, these numbers include warheads classified as fully operational, in reserve, ready to be made operational, or retired pending dismantlement. So, 1960, when I when I just gave the numbers for the PSYOP 62, I said the U.S. had around 3,300 warheads. We actually had at that time just uh, just over 20,000. Wow. 20,000 warheads in the world. We had around 18,000 of those. Russia had around 1,600. The UK had a couple dozen. (laughs) 20,000.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Not three, not one.
1: No, by 1990, that number had jumped to 55,000. Wow. And at the end of the Cold War, that was 1980. By the end of the Cold War in 1990, there were just under 60,000 warheads in the world. Wow. And additional countries had them besides the U.S., the Soviet Union, and the U.K. France, China, and Israel also had them. By the year 2000, you could add India and Pakistan to that list. Wow. And in 2010, that number had dropped to 22,000. And this has everything to do with the treaties that went into place when people realized, what are we doing? Yeah. We went from thinking it would take 400 warheads to completely bring our enemy to the knees to building a global arsenal of 60,000. Yeah. (laughs) So what's the point? Yeah. (laughs) So the numbers started to drop. By 2010, there were 22,000. By 2022 today, there's roughly 12,700 in the world. Wow. So that number has dropped a lot. This is part of what we discussed just a few minutes ago when we were talking about the protest, how it had gone from a million people in 1981 to nobody having any interest or really thinking of nuclear weapons anymore in this
0: day and age. Yeah, what the heck happened?
1: Once treaties went in place and the Cold War ended and people just knew that countries were reducing their inventories, then it was no longer a concern. But the U.S. went from 24,000 in 1980... To 9,500, still way too many nuclear weapons. And the Soviet Union, their arsenal had actually climbed up to 37,000 at the end of the Cold War. Wow. So that gap switched. Yeah. They built more than we did. And that's down to 12,000. So they still have more warheads by 2010 than the United States. So, you know, add it all up, it's 22,000. Pakistan and India have roughly 70 to 80 each
0: but what of the nuclear winter (laughs) that affects everyone?
1: (laughs) It does affect everyone. And that's it is, you know, we, we all benefit from having clean air. We all don't benefit when nuclear winter takes over and wipes out everybody. Yeah. So threat estimates have started to be done on, you know, what would happen in, a small launch or a limited launch to a full-scale nuclear war and what the impacts of that would be. So I went back and I went through quite a few articles and pulled together bits and pieces here and there and put together my own summary of the threat estimates that would come from it.
0: Okay, let's hear it.
1: Let's go back to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Okay. So the two atomic bombs, Fat Man and Little Boy, Mm. <laughs> uh, dropped in August 6, August 9, 1945. They each had an approximate yield of 15 kilotons each. That's 15,000 tons of TNT of equivalent explosive. Mm. They dropped those over the two cities, and it immediately basically vaporized five square miles of both of those cities. 213,000 Japanese died either immediately or within five months of the explosion of the explosions. Some estimates put later deaths related to radiation as high as an additional 60,000. Man. So this is from two 15 kiloton bombs. Yeah. So if we add up all those numbers, you know, roughly you're getting to, you know, 275,000 roughly people killed from those two bombs. It's a lot of people. Yeah. Now I mentioned the you know the carpet bombing with the B29s and I think those killed between 400 and 600,000 people just with traditional you know 1000 pounds
0: bombs dropping drop in a bomb from a plane.
1: Yeah and you know we had learned a lot of lessons at the time and we really knew how to be diabolical and we would do things like And we weren't the only country. Uh, You would fly over a populated area, and the first thing you do is you drop traditional bombs that explode and blow rubble and combustible material all over the place. And then the next wave comes in and drops incendiary devices that catches everything on fire. And you end up creating firestorms that just suck the oxygen out of everything, and they become self-sustaining, and it just incinerates everything in the area.
0: Yeah, diabolical. It is
1: diabolical. (laughs) I mentioned that Pakistan and India have between 70 and 80 each, Mm -hmm. which doesn't seem like a very large number. But those are two countries. Think about Pakistan having 70 nuclear warheads. Yeah. That's scary as hell. Yeah. Those two countries have been at each other's throats for quite a few decades. If we just look at a limited nuclear conflict between Pakistan and India and say they each, each launched 50 warheads. So their average yield on their warheads is also around 15 kilotons similar to what was used in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. So each warhead, in turn, would incinerate roughly a five-square-mile area. So the specific direct human deaths is unspecified because not really clear on which cities each country has primarily targeted. And there are some very populous cities in both countries. There's also tactical and strategic cities that don't have as high of a population center, so we don't know. But the estimates range anywhere from the tens to the hundreds of millions, just in with a hundred bombs. Around 5 million tons of soot would be ejected into the stratosphere. Dude. (laughs) The climate model for that, of putting that much soot in the atmosphere, says that the surface temperature of the Earth over the next five years would drop around 1.8 degrees Celsius. or roughly 3.2 Fahrenheit. Now, that's the average. Yeah. That means in some areas it wouldn't drop at all or maybe get warmer, but in other areas it might drop by 20 degrees Fahrenheit. This would be significant enough to alter rainfall patterns, and it would decrease the annual global precipitation by 8%. So by year four, around 1.3 billion people will face a 20% reduction of their current food supply. So damage to the ozone layer would increase UV penetration by 30 to
0: 80%. I'm just like imagining this.
1: <laughs> so this is this is a nightmare scenario. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, so, h- hellscape. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of people don't understand what an increase in UV radiation means directly. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, we go out and we put on our UV50 sunblock and we think we're good. Yeah. So right now, I think the ozone Filters out around 98% of all of the sun's ultraviolet radiation.
0: Yeah, we just get a small little little pinhole of it.
1: So for every percent increase in UV radiation exposure, your chance of cancer goes up by two percent.
0: Oh, I see. So it's like a like a ratio. It doubles.
1: If you are exposed to 10% more UV, your chance of cancer goes up twenty percent. Wow. The climate models for this estimate that with 115 kiloton warheads it would deplete the ozone by 30 to 80%. Wow. So basically Basically it would make living on the surface of the planet very hazardous. Yeah. You would have people would have to be completely shielded
0: underground. <laughs>
1: yeah, and if you did come to the surface you would have to be, you know, blocked from the sun's rays and have sufficient material to block the UV or else you're almost guaranteed to get some form of cancer.
0: Wow. And so, that's just the one part.
1: <laughs> that's just the one part.
0: That's only if you didn't get vaporized. Or starved to death. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: the final estimate that I did was for a full-scale nuclear exchange between the United States and Russia. This has been even more scary with... You know, the recent rhetoric on Ukraine Ukraine and Russia stating that it may use nuclear weapons, and these are things that cause me to lose sleep at night. Because, <laughs> you know, the average yield of, of the U.S. and the Soviet—and the Russia—yeah, not the Soviet Union anymore. The average yield of the United States and Russia's nuclear arsenal is anywhere from 40 times to 170 times what was dropped in Nagasaki and Hiroshima.
0: Oh, yeah. Wow
1: probably around 2.5 to 3 megatons. So the direct human deaths are estimated at around 770 million. This is the first 24, 48 hours. Yeah. Roughly 150 to 180 million tons of soot would be ejected into the stratosphere. It would reduce the amount of sunlight reaching the planet's surface by about 60 to 70 percent for six months. Wow. So the Core farming regions in the United States, Europe, Russia, and China would see an average cooling of 20 degrees Celsius, 36 degrees Fahrenheit. And that was for the first two summers. So basically, if you have an average summer temperature of 85 degrees in Iowa, you're going to be down to 49 degrees Hmm. on average in the summertime. So crops are going to fail globally it would still be 10 degrees C or 18 Fahrenheit cooler after the first decade. <laughs> Global precipitation would drop by 50% by year three or four.
0: So did you crunch these numbers or where'd you figure this out?
1: You know, there's, there's a lot of studies out there that have climatologists that run these numbers. They've gone back and looked at events such as the the KT extinction that we discussed. So that was, that was significant. It pretty much wiped out every single life form on earth that weighed more than 10 pounds. Hmm. And it ejected 1.7 billion tons of soot into the atmosphere. Yeah. But there's a lot of this out there if you start piecing it together. And some people have done that work, and I started to try to you know, repeat their work and then go back out and compare what I had put together with theirs, and they aligned. So it's, oh, wow. it's a scary scenario no matter how you dice it. Yeah. So by this time, by the third or fourth year, global food production drops 90% and roughly 75% of every country's population is dead. By year five, the reduction in available food calories in most countries would reduce by anywhere between 97% and 99.7%. Oh, yeah. Wow. So you would be back to a civilization would be destroyed. You would be back to a foraging society. You couldn't grow food. Cannibalism would probably run amok. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And people would be foraging for whatever methods or means that they could uh, to survive.
0: It would be a Mad Max scenario.
1: It would very much be a Mad Max (laughs) scenario. Yeah. So it was hypothesized that a full scale nuclear exchange might not actually result in the extinction of humanity for that exact reason. We talked about the asteroid, you know, ejected 1.7 billion tons of soot. But some life forms did survive and eventually evolved, yeah, and were part of that evolution. Life found a way. Life found a way. But whatever small fraction of humans that didn't succumb to starvation, hypothermia, epidemics uh, would need to c- cope with exactly what you just said with roving armed gangs desperate for food. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you would be back to back to Mad Max. Mm-hmm. But again, we go back to why are so few people interested in this topic today?
0: yeah I mean, probably because it's not something that helps you sleep well at night it's easier to you know just turn on the TV and watch something else but yeah why why aren't we you know thinking a little bit more about this and sort of to that point, <laughs>
1: I've actually you know, for the last few nights, as I've gotten deeper and deeper into this, and the numbers started to come together, and it started to paint a picture in my head, I've had quite a few nightmares. Oh the last no! <laughs> oh, on no. This. And <laughs> it's probably just from thinking about it. You know, lay, you're laying in bed thinking about it before you go to sleep, so it's the last thing on your mind. Yeah. <laughs> <But> <laughs>
0: yeah, and then you, you know, well, I was about to spoil the new Doctor Strange movie, but I won't. <laughs> no.
1: So a lot of people, the premise is. We have very responsible people in our government. They know what they're doing. Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev, and again, you know, and again in uh, 2021, Joe Biden and and Vladimir Putin all made statements that nobody can win a nuclear war. There is no reason why we should fight a nuclear war. Yeah. So a lot of people think, well, they're safe. They're in reliable hands. They're secured. Everything is locked down. There's nothing really to be worried about. This, nobody's going to let this happen. Mm -hmm. Do you want to hear some few examples of uh, close calls with nuclear weapons, though?
0: Yes, I do. I, I remember <sighs> hearing. Of, I remember hearing of one. Uh, I don't remember the guy's name. It was like some Russian officer. I, I saw in a meme that uh, was ordered to pull the trigger, push the button, and and he refused, and that. That saved us in one. Was that one on your list? There's
1: been a couple situations like that that have occurred. Mm. And I just, I really want people to be aware of this that think that our, our nuclear arsenals around the world are in safe hands because it's, this is what scares me more than the after effects is the fact that it could happen. I mean, I think the one consolation that we have living in this area is there's probably a good chance we're going to get hit pretty heavy and may not survive for more than a couple of days, you know, after it, because... Those that do survive, that's going to be hell on Earth. Yeah. (laughs) There were quite a few before 1960. You know, this is when we were kind of emerging into nuclear powers and, you know, we were feeling our way through desperate and dangerous times or scary and dangerous times. And I didn't really go into all of those, but I listed, and I didn't list all of them. So, you know, these enumerated examples are not representative of all of the examples. These are ones that I either just found comical in a macabre way. Okay. Yeah. To just downright scary. Okay. So we'll go to October nineteen sixty. There there's a you know there there's quite a few in the early years of the Kennedy administration and the tensions that built up through the Cuban Missile Crisis. But in o- October nineteen sixty, a US early warning system detected the launch of dozens of Soviet missiles headed towards the US. And this sent NORAD to its maximum alert level. But before anybody could take action, somebody mentioned that Khrushchev happened to be visiting New York at the time. Hmm. So that led people to start to doubt that the Soviets would fire on the United States while Khrushchev was visiting New York. So they eventually held on, then they stood down, and the situation cleared. And the U.S. later determined that the radar system had been fooled by the moonrise over Norway. Oh, my. And had had interpreted that as an all-out attack by the Soviet Union.
0: Whoa.
1: <laughs> well, call number one.
0: Yeah, because had they retaliated, I mean, that would have, have been bad.
1: Because <laughs> the Soviet Union would have retaliated back.
0: Exactly. We would have had a
1: full-scale nuclear war.
0: All from a misunderstanding. All from the moon. Yeah. Well, <laughs> good thing that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: You got the man in the moon up there going, what the hell's wrong with you people? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you've never seen me before. Yeah.
0: I'm trying to be like Romeo and Juliet down there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> January 1961, just a few months later, a B-52 was flying over North Carolina. And it was carrying two 24 megaton nuclear warheads. Now, 24 megatons is about 1,600 times the Hiroshima Nagasaki bombs.
0: Oh, my God.
1: So it's like dropping 1,600 of those on North Carolina. Oh, my God. No. (laughs) The wing fell off the plane. Whoa. So it spiraled out of control. It broke apart. Two 24 megaton nuclear warheads went flying into what was the city? It was uh, Goldsboro, North Carolina. Wow. And smacked into the ground. Wow. Now... I know for all you people out there saying that they're safe and they're secure. And yes, you can hit them with hammers all you want and they will never detonate because there is a specific arming sequence and there right. are safety measures in place. <laughs> yes. In these particular bombs, they had six safety mechanisms. In one of those bombs, five of the six failed and it went into the arming procedure. Holy shit. The arming and detonation <laughs> <Holy> procedure. <crap. laughs> so five of the six failed. The sixth one held on. And it was sheer dumb luck. It was like two wires that really should have crossed didn't. They missed each other. And the sixth one maintained its, its integrity and the bombs
0: didn't. Detonate. Oh, my God. That's a long shot move. <laughs> 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 Woo. <laughs> November
1: 1961, same year. Strategic Air Command in Omaha lost contact with the early warning radar station at Thule Greenland. And it also lost it simultaneously with NORAD, so North American Defense Systems. They immediately became concerned that an attack was taking place, and their entire alert force of bombers was ordered to prepare for takeoff. There happened to be a U.S. bomber that was circling over Thule at the time and was able to make contact with the station and radioed back to SAC that the station was still there, it wasn't under attack, and that diffused the situation. The entire situation was caused by a single failure of an AT&T switch. What? AT&T had installed the switch. There were supposed to be redundant systems. They had assured the Strategic Air Command that there were redundant systems, and there weren't. Oh, man. And the switch that they put in there failed. And it cut off the Strategic Air Command from NORAD and all early warning radar systems.
0: Wow. Incredible. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's random <laughs> or negligent. <laughs> it's,
1: it's negligent. It's random. It's irresponsible. Yeah, there we go. It's the level of irresponsibility that one person have, that can have to impact the entire global population yeah. from one stupid act.
0: If anything's worth doing, it's
1: worth doing well. So the, here's, you know, if you, if you like statistics and probability there is a statistical probability of some level that you will be able to avoid mishaps so many times, mm-hmm. but eventually one of those is going to get you.
0: Mm-hmm. It's it, kind of like Murphy's law. Right?
1: It, it is Murphy's law. Well, to an extent it might be, you know, well, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. It's like when you tell somebody there's a 5% chance of something happening, they're like, Oh, I'm not worried about it. There's only 5% chance. Mm. But if you go through that scenario 20 times.
0: Yeah, that's a, different percentage right
1: right it's a five percent chance per term which means that after 20 times you're almost guaranteed that that situation will have occurred once we're talking about the 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 livelihood of humanity here
0: yeah yeah i like being human you know i like being alive yeah i like being alive like being me it's pretty good i hope you do too audience
1: I like being able to go to the movies on Wednesday, I, after, late, late Wednesday afternoons and, you know, watch a movie and yeah. I have to go out and forage for food for my family.
0: Yeah. Yeah. If you don't like being you, keep looking. <laughs>
1: October 1962, less than a year later, and this is during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So we have to understand how heightened tensions were at the time between the United States and the Soviet Union during the Cuban Missile Crisis. The Soviet Union was wanting to put nuclear warheads in Cuba so that they could attack the U.S. mainland without hardly any notification whatsoever. Kennedy ordered the Navy out to blockade the ships that were coming in. The Russian ships had escorts. So we were on the verge of nuclear war with the Soviet Union at that time. And during that crisis, radar operators in New Jersey reported to NORAD that a nuclear attack was underway with the impact target in Tampa, Florida, and that they had expected the impact to occur within minutes of them reporting. So NORAD went on high alert, but they, they hesitated and monitored the situation and realized that no impact occurred over Tampa, so they didn't launch the retaliatory strike. Awesome. (laughs) Thankfully. (laughs) The radar operators later learned that a a test tape simulating a missile attack from Cuba was being run at the exact same facility. Oh, whoa. And at the same time, the object that they detected was a satellite that was coming over the horizon that just happened to be in line with them in Cuba. And it hadn't been reported to them as it should have been. Wow. Wow. It was a spy satellite, but, you know. It was probably a spy or it could have been a normal satellite, but it definitely wasn't something worth, you know, nuclear launch.
0: Yeah.
1: Here's a crazy one. This guy has kind of become my, I won't say hero, but I I have garnered a lot of respect for this gentleman in the past week. Captain Vasily Arkhipov. This is the one. Yeah. Yeah. Captain Vasily Arkhipov can be called the man that saved the world. Mm -hmm. And he is a, he was a Russian officer. Uh, He was born around 1926, 1927. He uh, must have been 26 because he was 19 years old and an officer, uh, and he fought for Russia against Japan, as I mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. at the end of World War II. He was later assigned to a Soviet submarine called K-19. And I don't know if anybody out there recognizes K-19. There was a movie that came out some years ago with Harrison Ford called K-19, The Widowmaker.
0: I remember that movie title.
1: So in that one... The reactor started the meltdown, so their primary primary coolant system failed. They reached a point to where they had to start sending in and rotating crews to try to rig a secondary coolant system in order to fix the reactor, and the guys did. But in the process, they lost around 14 to 20 members of the engineering team and all of the officers of that unit, and the entire sub was irradiated. So everybody on board was subjected to radiation, mm-hmm. but they saved the sub. They were able to get it to surface and eventually got help and got it back home. K-19 had an interesting history after that. They got it back, they repaired it, but there was a lot of, uh, a lot of things that went wrong with that. It was like it was the cursed sub. Hmm. In fact, after the, the, the crew, after that incident, they dubbed it the Hiroshima. Oh, shit. Uh, Vasily Arkhipov was the executive officer on K-19. After K-19, he was assigned to a different sub, which was a Foxtrot-class diesel sub, um, B-59. And again, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, when the U.S. sent the Navy out to start blockading the, the ships carrying the weapons to Cuba... Unknown to the U.S., the Soviet Union had deployed four of these Foxtrot submarines. They were special submarines on a secret mission to escort the Soviet armed deliveries to Cuba. Each submarine carried a T-5 torpedo, and it had a 15 kiloton warhead in a range of 20 miles. Whoa. It was a nuclear torpedo. Whoa. And there were four of them. Just hours after there was a, and I can't remember the pilot's name, and I'm, shame on me. So the U.S. was sending U-2 reconnaissance flights over Cuba, and they had, they had made a threat that if U-2s were shot down, they were seriously considered an invasion of Cuba. So just hours after the Russians did shoot down a U-2, the submarine B-59 was detected by a, a U.S. task force that consisted of an aircraft carrier and 11 escort ships, including destroyers. So they detected B-59, and they started dropping depth charges. Now, these weren't the depth charges meant to destroy a sub. They were depth charges that are used for training exercises, but they still make an explosion. One of the crew members on B-59 later in an interview said it was kind of like being in a 55-gallon steel drum with somebody hitting the side of it with a sledgehammer. Wow. The batteries were running low because it was a diesel sub, and they hadn't been able to surface to get air for the batteries. The AC system had shut down. The crew was exhausted. The temperatures on the ship ranged from 115 Fahrenheit to 140 Fahrenheit in the engineering department. Wow. So people were sweltering. They were tired. CO2 levels were rising. So some crew members were starting to pass out. Wow. And the captain, uh, Captain Savitsky, because he couldn't communicate with anybody and depth charges were being dropped, erroneously believed that World War III had started. Yeah. He wanted to launch the T-5 at the, at the U.S. task force. Aboard Russian submarines, it requires the two senior officers to approve that, the captain and the political officer. So the political officer agreed with him. So they had the two approvals necessary to launch the T-5. Just as a twist of fate, Vasily Arkhipov, who was the fleet commander of that flotilla, happened to be on the B-59. He could have been on any of the four subs. He was on the B-59. Which was the only sub that required three people to approve the firing. Yes, so the captain and the political officer both said fire the weapon. Arkhipov stepped in and said no. Wow. And a heated argument broke out, and eventually he was able to to convince Captain Savitsky to vote in his favor, to disarm the weapon, to surface the ship, to communicate to Moscow and await further orders. So they ended up surfacing near the fleet. There's pictures of B fifty nine surfacing. And they communicated to Moscow and then they turned and, and left. So wow. Vasily arkhipov is if he hadn't been on that sub, they would have launched.
0: And there that'd have been a different reality.
1: And a fifteen kiloton warhead going off underneath a US aircraft carrier and its escort fleet at the height of the Cold War. Kennedy had already made several clear statements that if any nuclear weapons were used and launched out of Cuba that the U.S. would launch a full retaliatory strike against the Soviet Union. Wow. And he, <laughs> and he prevented it be from happening. He
0: prevented that. Dude.
1: <laughs> yeah. The sad thing about him is, well, I, I, he, lived to be, he lived to be 72 years old, almost 73. He was married to his wife for 46 years. They married young. And in 1997, a year before he died... He was given a speech, and that was the first time he disclosed what actually ever happened on that submarine back in 1962. Wow. And his daughter was in the audience, and it was the first time she had ever heard of it. He didn't even tell his family. Wow. He kept the party line, and he held that all the way until 1997. He died the following year from cancer, which they related as most probably coming from his exposure on K-19 to wow. radioactive
0: wow. material. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> Amazing.
1: Scary. Yeah. <laughs> What's even scarier, and this gets into the politics of it, and I can see people doing it. I think even today in Russia, the opinion on Vasily Arkhipov is torn between him being a world hero and being a coward mm. for not pushing the button mm. as he was supposed to have done, but it would have wiped out the world. Yeah. And I, you can see that That's happening today. I mean, yeah. so I was doing a little parad- <laughs> I was doing a paradigm shift the other day, thinking. Okay. say this had been a U.S. Ohio class sub at this time and the U.S. was being thwarted from its military aims and the captain of a sub had ordered the the launch of a torpedo nuclear weapon and somebody stepped in and blocked it. I could see Facebook and Twitter and social media blowing up with arguments over whether this guy was a hero or a freaking coward.
0: Oh, sure. Yeah, (laughs) there's the I'm going to bring up. I think it's uh, Sir Davos from Game of Thrones, you know, coward today, live tomorrow or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> uh. yeah.
1: but it's foolish. It's, yeah, you yeah. know, the, the guy literally saved the world from, you know, by preventing a, an act of, of sheer stupidity and desperation from taking place. Yes. But because he didn't tow the propagandist party line, many people consider him to be a coward.
0: Mm. Well, I say those people are cowards. You
1: hear that? (laughs) Or idiots. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. There's something to be said about being a heroic coward.
0: Coward is such a weird word, you know, because it's like, you know, everybody wants to be the hero. Nobody wants to be the coward because they, you don't.
1: You don't want to be stigmatized with that.
0: Yeah. You don't want to be stigmatized with that, you know, and then, you know, all the social ramifications, you know, and the bullying and all this stuff. There's so much social aspect to decision making being human.
1: So here's, anyway, here's here's where I draw don't the line.
0: Digress I, into that.
1: <laughs> I think if you make a a decision to avoid confrontation because the scope of people that benefit from your decision is larger than just yourself, mm-hmm. and in the long run, you know, benefits everyone. That's not cowardice. Mm. You know, when you think of coward, I think of um, and maybe this is how I was influenced as a kid. I used to watch the old Lost in Space reruns, and you had Doctor Smith. Mm-hmm. You know, and he would make decisions to avoid confrontation all the time, but he would throw people under the bus, he would manipulate, he would deceive, and it was all self-serving. It was what benefited him the most. Yeah, Arkhipov didn't do this to be- benefit himself. Now, I am sure, beyond a doubt, that when this conversation was going on, he was thinking of his wife and his daughter. Mm, mm-hmm. But he was most likely, probably also thinking what was in the best interest of not only his country as a whole, but society as a Humanity. whole. Humanity. And he had already had experience with just a relatively. I mean, it was a high amount of radiation on the K-19, but that's minor compared to what people would be exposed to in a full-out nuclear war. Mm-hmm. Another training tape issue, November 1979. Mm. So a training tape containing a scenario for a large-scale nuclear attack was mistakenly loaded into an operational computer at NORAD, and it sent the U.S. ICBM crews into their highest alert level and scrambled the nuclear bomber fleet. Whoa. So eventually it was de-escalated, obviously. We're still here today. But the senior U.S. State Department advisor at the time, a gentleman by the name of Marshall Schulman, made a statement after that said, False alerts of this kind are not a rare occurrence. There is a complacency about handling these weapons that disturbs me. September 1983. I got a couple more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So again, it was a period of high tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union. A Soviet early warning satellite showed that the U.S. had launched five land-based missiles at the Soviet Union. The officer in charge of the station had only minutes to decide whether or not it was a false alarm and to report it to Moscow. The satellite was determined to be operating properly, so the normal procedure would have been for him to report the attack so that a retaliatory strike could be launched. And instead, he went on instinct, and he didn't report the attack because he didn't believe that the U.S. would launch only five missiles. It was later determined that the satellite had mistakenly interpreted the sun's reflection off the tops of clouds as a missile launch. Whoa.
0: Yeah. Instinct. (laughs) Lucky, risky, spooky. We all probably like to think that we're, you know, the good detective on a hunch and we're right every time, but close call. (laughs) This is
1: one where it tears you between duty and humanity. Yeah. I mean, by all practical, rational processes in military discipline, yeah. he should have reported it right yeah. away. Mm-hmm. He probably also should have reported it and said, this is what I see, but I'm not convinced that it is what we think it is. Yeah, But I'm sure there was probably some thoughts going in his mind that the minute he opened Pandora's box, there was no closing the lid. Sure. So he ended up not reporting it.
0: Yeah, he may have understood how everything would have functioned uh, and reacted huh
1: there's a couple more short ones because you know so those again for those of you thinking oh yeah but that was a long time ago ah shit Spill, spillage shit you know that was a long time ago and we've gotten better 2003 so let's get into the 20 uh 21st century half of the u.s air force units responsible for safety and security of nuclear weapons failed their nuclear surety inspections. And this was despite the fact that they were given a significant amount of advance notice that the inspections were gonna take place.
0: Oh, okay, so they procrastinated?
1: They just didn't do it, <laughs> or they didn't know their jobs mm. in some cases, and they didn't get it right.
0: So so what, what's going on here? They they ha- had like a, a, a test coming up to?
1: So in the military, you're tested all the time.
0: Oh, I believe that. You know,
1: it's it's not like in the Old Testament where People will say, yeah, God tests people all the time, but it also says God shall not test anyone. He shall not tempt no man, but he does it anyway. Mm -hmm. The United States military is pretty blatant about it. They're like, this is your job. We are going to test you. We're going to constantly run drills. We're going to check. And this was a um, nuclear surety inspection that gets held randomly.
0: What's that word, Surety.
1: So, surety is basically the, the reliability of the process. Okay, yeah, the sureness yeah, of it's, it. Yeah, it's like a surety and safety inspection. Oh, a surety,
0: yeah. yes. A su- assurance. Yeah. Yes, of course. Okay, I'm with it. Yeah,
1: hold on, I'm pouring a beer. Yeah, no problem. And I'm actually cleaning it because I spilt like a third of it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, at least it's not plutonium. It's not plutonium, no.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, and but they were given months of advance notice. Yeah. And they still couldn't get it right. And these are people that are supposed to know the process to and, and have their
0: and have that be like a reaction.
1: Yeah. <laughs> these are the people that are responsible for the thousands of warheads that we have in our arsenal.
0: So, what is this? You know, like, is it, uh, is it there? Uh, I'm going to bring up Game of Thrones here again. Uh, he's this guy that, he's uh, a mercenary that he's, hangs he, out with Lannister. Yeah, he's a mercenary and hangs out with Lannister. And, yeah. uh, he has this little speech that he goes on because he's a tough guy. He
1: He was one of my favorite characters because he was just he was a he was a psychological mess. He, you know, yeah,
0: he, he <laughs> but it like well composed on the outside in a in a weird way. And he, he comes and says this thing where it's like people like him are the ones that rule the world, you know, they they take over kingdoms, and then the world gets ruined by his children and grandchildren, who essentially become soft-handed. And uh not as willing to do what it takes, you know, to be on top or whatever. And I mean, is, is that kind of like what might be happening here in this case study? I don't know. Fini- finish saying what your thing is.
1: No, it's, <laughs> 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 it was a complete failure of discipline in the system for, uh, okay. for one thing. It's, yeah. You know, these, these are soldiers, these are military personnel that need to take a level of responsibility commensurate with the task at hand, and they didn't do it. Mm-hmm. 2007, four years later. Six armed and live nuclear cruise missiles were mistakenly loaded onto a B-52. Oh, my God. And disappeared. What? For 36 hours. And it was, it was 36 hours later before anybody even realized they were missing. Oh, my God. And the only reason that they realized they were missing is because the, the B-52 flew to Louisiana and was sitting on a runway... And there was a crew that was inspecting and stumbled across six armed and live nuclear warheads and reported it.
0: Wow. 36 <laughs> hours. Yeah. Wow.
1: What would have happened if they'd ended up in another country? How long would it have taken before somebody to realize that they were missing? Yeah. Because mista- they were mistakenly loaded.
0: Quote, unquote, mistakenly. The next <laughs> inventory.
1: <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. Um, the last example I'm going to give, this is 2010. I think this is, this strikes close enough to home to know that we're you know, 2010 wasn't that long ago. No, it wasn't. So a circuit card was improperly replaced in a computer, which caused a launch control center at Warren Air Force Base to lose contact and control over 50 Minutemen 3 ICBMs that were on high alert and armed warheads. Whoa. For nearly an hour. Whoa. They lost complete control of them. Oh, my God. <laughs> simply because a, a computer, a circuit card, was replaced improperly. Wow. There, you know, there's other things, too. There's you know when once icbm started getting into you know the, the technology started to become more advanced and the amount of warning time that nation states had to be alerted to the incoming threat of a nuclear weapon they started coming up with systems to put the war, their own warheads on a shorter and shorter leash mm. instead of being you know 45 minutes to arm and launch it went to 30 and then it went to 20 and then it went to 10 Wow. So you end up with hair trigger nukes. Yeah. And now we have countries, we have them, and the Soviet Union is, is, is testing some. And so is China, is the hypersonic ICBMs, mm-hmm. you know, which travel at 35, 3,800 miles per hour. And that reduces warning time as well. So you get more and more sensitive hair triggers on the nukes. Dude. And this is when it gets really scary.
0: Yeah. Well, let's continue.
1: Through the horror. Hmm. Hmm. So there are two documented cases concerning the stability of U.S. presidents in nuclear warheads. Mm. This is one where it gave me concern. It made me angry. And it's where I also, this morning when I got up and I was finalizing my notes, I said, this is where it's going to get confrontational. And we're probably going to get some hate mail on this. Mm. And I did not, for full disclosure, going into this, this is an episode on existential threats. It was not an episode to open up opportunities to make jabs at Donald Trump. Mm, mm -hmm. But there turned out to be quite a few incidents that involved him that were scary that need to be discussed. Wow. So, again, it can be, if you're a Trump supporter, uh, you're probably going to be sensitive to this, but you can look it up yourself. And if I'm full of shit, if you find something that contradicts what I'm saying here, let me know. And if you find something that confirms what I'm saying here and you can't contradict it, then maybe you need to question your loyalties. So the first one was in August of 1974, though. In Richard Nixon's last couple weeks before he decided to resign, he had become clinically depressed, he was emotionally unstable, and he began drinking heavily. Hmm. So U.S. Secretary of Defense James Schlesinger at the time instructed the Joint Chiefs of Staff to route any emergency order coming from the president, such as a nuclear launch order, through him first Hmm. and to not do anything Mm -hmm. until he was able to review it and tell him how to respond.
0: Well, that's cool that they could get in that fail safe.
1: (laughs) It's outside of the realms of the authority though. So this is people actually going above and beyond their authority level to suppress the authority of a sitting president.
0: Sure. Yeah. Well, in endangering themselves with treason potential and all that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that was one situation in 1974, 47 years later, January, 2021, So this is days after the U.S. Capitol attack. The Joint Chief of Staff, General Mark Milley, agreed with members of Congress that the president, President Trump, had become unstable. In fact, the words that were used were crazy. Hmm. So he had a secret meeting of senior military leaders at the Pentagon. And General Milley instructed those that were in charge that they were not to take orders from anyone unless he was involved in the decision-making process. His command was understood and acknowledged by everyone in the room. Wow. So this is another case where he thankfully stepped forward and said, you are not to carry out the president's command on something such as launching nukes unless you run it through me first. And everybody agreed with him. Wow. So we talked about how the nuclear arsenals had reduced from, you know, 60,000 roughly at the end of the Cold War to 12,700 in 2022. So here are some of the scary things, though, because you would think that we'd had it under control and that we would continue to reduce our arsenals. So in Trump's first year in office, he denounced the agreement on nuclear regulations that also made it more difficult for Iran to develop nuclear weapons of their own. Okay. He basically yanked it.
0: So, huh. So this agreement, by him yanking it, would make it easier for Iran to make missiles and harder for us to...
1: Yeah, basically, it it reduced regulations and controls. Yeah. He also avowed, shortly after that, the 1987 Intermediate-Range Nuclear Force Treaty that was signed between Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev. Wow. In November 2020, he said that he had planned to withdraw from the Open Skies Treaty. Now, the the Open Skies Treaty was a treaty that nations had agreed upon— To allow surveillance, it was basically to open their skies for surveillance on missile activity.
0: Mm, Kind of creating like a network of eyes to watch for potential nuclear threats.
1: Right, or to offset false alarms, like we saw where... You know, a satellite, the sun bounces off and the satellite picks it up as a nuclear launch because the sun bounces off a cloud. Yeah. And we have surveillance systems that say, well, that's not true because we're down lower. We're watching the entire surface. We don't see any plumes. Yeah. Trump said he was going to withdraw from that. Why? Well. <laughs> not that you'd know, but. <laughs> I can tell you that members of, who was the former director of the CIA and the NSA and also many high-ranking military officers basically said the decision, they used the word insane. Mm. They said it's completely insane to do this.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: So fortunately, the last treaty, the New START program, Trump wanted to, wanted to let that expire as well. That was one that I believe was signed in 2010 between the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, was also working on the continual reduction of nuclear arsenals, and Trump said he wanted to withdraw from that. So weird. Uh,
0: yeah, no, but mm. keeping on the existential threat.
1: Fortunately, that, but that is part of the existential threat because we yeah. need to we need to get these arsenals down to even if it's not zero. I mean, if we could get it down to just tactical field nukes of you know four hundred tons to four kilotons. You know, we're not going to be ejecting hundreds of millions of tons of soot into the atmosphere in a full-scale nuclear war. Yeah. But the last treaty, the New START program, Trump was going to let it expire. Fortunately, he lost the election. Mm. And by the time it was set to expire, Biden was in office, and they extended it. Mm -hmm. But it's just the insanity of a world leader, you know, going through these decades decades of trying to, you know, reduce nuclear proliferation and the accumulation of an absurd number of warheads.
0: Yeah, one well, increase trust too. you know, amongst nations. Mm. So that's, and that's, that's ultimately what that takes, right? I mean, you can't just be like, all right, I'm going to lay down my arms, and then you do too. I mean, because you got to trust that it both happens simultaneously. Otherwise, <laughs>
1: yeah, but you got to enter, enter, enter into the agreement in the first place. Yeah. And you can't be pulling out of agreements like that. Right. <clears throat> Which is also why when we, in the last episode, we were talking about the, uh, the doomsday clock. Mm-hmm. When Trump left office, they were going to push it back out because it was sitting at 100 seconds to midnight. You know, on January 20th, when Biden was inaugurated, the scientists were going to roll it back out. But they decided not to just because the world was an absolute mess at the time mm-hmm. and the January 6th Capitol riots. Yeah, yeah, had had a play. When Donald Trump is no longer president, Mm -hmm. he still continues to have an impact in the rhetoric. So in March of 2022, this is just a few months ago, Trump said that Biden should threaten Russia with a nuclear attack. He said that if he was still the president, he would tell Russia he's sending all of our nuclear submarines, ballistic missile submarines, to cruise up and down their coasts and threaten them with a nuclear war. It's insane. Yeah, in, 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 this, this, sorry.
0: this isn't a video game, it's, this is life, this is all of our lives.
1: <laughs> and honestly, if you doubt me, these are open interviews that he's given, please go look them up. He also said, this one is almost comical. Well, no, this one is, it is comical. He said that we should paint Chinese flags on a bunch of American F-22s, and his words were, bomb the shit out of Russia. Wow. And blame it on China. Wow. Not only would this be an act of war against China, but this is like something a fifth grader would say.
0: Oh, yeah. Like,
1: it's like, well, let's paint Chinese flags. China doesn't have F-22s. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, what, it, I don't know what he expected Russia to believe when they finally shot down one of our F-22s. And there's an American pilot with all of the controls in English, and it's an F-22, and there's a Chinese flag painted on it.
0: I I see now why my friends are so up in arms when Elon Musk uh, entertains the idea of potentially letting Mr. Trump back onto Twitter, just because of the the, influential—the influence he has over— a certain group of people
1: well here's the thing too and this is so a couple years back trump had made a comment which just had me running and banging my head on the wall and again i'm i'm not a biden fan so i i don't like i don't really i'm not a fan of biden or trump i'm Mm. i'm right in the middle i wish we had somebody good up in office but trump had made a and there were military personnel high-ranking military officers around him with the air force and they were talking about the f-35 and he made some of the most asinine comments about the f-35 and he kept going on trying to get people to buy into his argument and you could just see the awkward uncomfortable silence around him Mm -hmm. and he was talking about f-35s being completely invisible and somebody had said yes sir mr president they're difficult to pick up on radar And he came back with like, no, 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 no. I've been told that they could be like flying right next to another plane and that plane can't see them. So I don't know if he watched Wonder Woman in the (laughs) 70s and thought that we had technology from Diana Prince. But (laughs) this is the president of the United States that is talking about the F-35s being completely invisible.
0: It was past tense.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was past tense. But when he was talking about the F-22s bombing the shit out of Russia... We have about 186 F-22s in service right now. Each of them can carry two 1,000-pound bombs, as opposed to a B-52, which can carry like 35 2,000-pound bombs. Wow, yeah. You know, so you're, you're not going to send across. And not only that, the, I mean, the, the range of, a, of an F-22 is like 1,800 miles. I think the distance from Ramstein Air Force Base in Germany to Moscow is like 1,600 miles. And that that is that is a round trip range of eighteen hundred miles.
0: See, that just is it. it, it th- those kinds of comments that come out of that guy's mouth, it can drive you insane or a person insane because they are insane.
1: It, yeah, and I'm not again. I didn't want to yeah, turn this into a Trump bash. I, t- I wanted to turn it into not. of, this is how close we could be from a nuclear catastrophe as an existential threat is when you have somebody as president of the United States. That thinks we have invisible jets, that thinks we should paint another country's flag on a plane and that will fool the enemy and then we could just bomb the shit out of them all day long. Consequence free. And that openly says in something that, you know, it, it hits the global media that we should tell Russia we're going to send our ballistic missile submarines to cruise up and down their coast and threaten to hit them with nuclear warheads. This is not what you want from somebody sitting in any government's office that is a nuclear power. It would scare the hell out of me if France's government, and France has, I'd have to look it up, three to four hundred nuclear warheads. If they started saying, we want to bomb the shit out of Russia with our nuclear warheads, and we're going to arm them, and if they keep going into the Ukraine, we might just consider launching a nuclear weapon. I'd be over here terrified. Yeah. So imagine how the rest of the world feels when you have a country sitting on 10,000 warheads, and the president and then former president is saying that, We should threaten the biggest nuclear power in the world with a first strike. It's freaking wild. And then you have that country with Vladimir Putin, as I said, who has been him and his high-level officials have been making a lot of irresponsible comments about possible use of nuclear weapons. So that just heightens the tension.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Freaking wild.
1: I just keep going back to the 97 to 99.7 reduction by country in available food calorie intake. Oh, yeah. After five years. Yeah. And it's... it's just all of
0: it. It's it, it, it affects everyone, or it can affect everyone. May it
1: not. <laughs> that's the first existential threat that I'd like for us to cover.
0: Okay. So. Well, yeah, that's, that's a pretty big one, and it's quite topical. Uh, yeah, it's like... Uh, Going back to it, so how how would a country, how would somebody or a group of people combat an existential threat? If you're getting a hypersonic ballistic missile sent at you and you have 10 minutes to respond or less, how do they stop it? I mean, we don't have to necessarily present the answers right now worrying about national security, uh, even if no. we did know the answer. But... Um,
1: A lot of sources for this one that you asked.
0: Pretty freaking wild. Yeah. So, yeah, what are the sources?
1: So, you know, I highly recommend anybody that is either interested in the information that we provided or doubts the information that we provided and wants to, you know, check our sources. So, one was the Alliance for Science. I had mentioned several times the Future of Life Institute, and it's FLI.org, the Federation of American Scientists, the Union of Concerned Scientists. Unredacted.com is where I got a lot of the information on the close calls with nuclear weapons that we've had over the last several decades. They basically have a lot of documents that were previously classified but have since been declassified and now available to the public. Nationalinterest.org, the NSRxiv.gwu.edu, Sage Journals. The National Center for Biotechnology for Information, and I did go out and bounce some of this, uh, as always, off Wikipedia just to see if it aligned with some of the things that I was saying. So very cool. And that's it. I hope I don't disturb your sleep tonight, nice, man. but I, yeah, I no, keep thinking okay. about nuclear winter.
0: Yeah, you know, we'll uh, we'll see where I go in the dream space tonight. <laughs>
1: All right, great. And I really didn't mean to turn this into a Trump bashing session, but it's just some of the things that came out with the nuclear rhetoric and his complete ignorance on the subject of military capabilities and, you know, our arsenal and his complete lack of consideration for the global ramifications of the words that come out of his mouth played a role in this in the last five years. And I couldn't take that out without really giving the full scope of the threat in the episode. Oh,
0: sure. Yeah. Working on being objective as possible. Uh, you know, I've, I've certainly gotten my jabs in before just because of family strife and stuff like that. But I'm working on dialing it back and just talking about stuff that's not in a jab, I guess. I don't need, I don't know. Might have to edit some comments out.
1: <laughs> right. I just would, you know, regardless, and I know, I know I have a lot of friends who voted for Trump because he wasn't a lifelong politician. He wasn't part of the swamp. He wasn't you know, part of, They they wanted the businessman. And I can respect the concept of putting somebody from the business community or even outside of the business community in a different type of you know, industry.
0: The business. My, so I was just talking to my dad earlier today, who is a avid Trump supporter, still is. And, you know, he got some jabs in on me earlier today and said that very same thing. I was looking for a businessman. You know, he's a businessman. You know, nobody gave him a shot. It's like, I, I wouldn't even call him a businessman. I think he's more of a con artist. Uh, but, you know, businessman, con artist, they kind of are the same thing anyway. So.
1: Or if you're going to put a businessman in, put somebody in that's articulate, that's conscientious, that can have an open dialogue uh, that doesn't speak like a third grader and i'm not saying that to be demeaning but just read some of his quotes it's it really does you know
0: read about psychology
1: yeah and read about this the psychology of it the, you know vote for a businessman by all means i don't care but put a responsible and an intelligent and an articulate one into office that has some level of empathy and compassion at least can pretend to have some level of empathy and compassion for the long-term ran- ramifications of you know not just our country and the relations with other countries but our position in the world and you know for our children and our children's children and when you go out and you look for Trump and nuclear weapons and you read some of his quotes you got to pay attention to who you vote for and really think about that person having their, their finger on the on the red button mm-hmm. at all times and he's not the guy that we want having that, you know his finger on the button nope <laughs> I think we're out. I think that's it. So All right. uh, yeah, nuclear threats and the and the risk of, of a nuclear winter wiping out humanity. <laughs> so the next time we'll we'll discuss something. Um hopefully
0: we'll still be here.
1: Hopefully we'll still be <laughs> here. Thanks for listening, guys. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah,
0: we're out. I love you, man. Yep. Love you, man. Boom.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Irrational Discourse podcast. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, you can send us an email at debate at irrationaldiscourse.com or you can contact us directly through our website at www.irrationaldiscourse.com. Please include your name and location if you'd like a shout out for your contribution. We only ask for and strive to give in return a little love, acceptance, and mutual respect.